Father, you uh, left behind your revelation for us. You made yourself known in a way that we could be certain and sure. And um, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds. Lord, we all have busy lives. We all have stuff going on in our heads. Help us to sit at the feet of Christ and to receive. To pay attention, Lord, to everything you have to say to us. My prayer is really that you would comfort and heal those who are brokenhearted and in need of it. And you would challenge others who are in need to be challenged right now. Either way, Lord, that your word would be heard. As we've said many times that the preacher would disappear, but still I pray you would be with the preacher as he comes to try to share these things you've shown me, Lord. What richness you have shown me in your word. What beauty, what greatness. And I hope by your help, by your spirit, to share it now to my brothers and sisters. And in that, I hope that you would give these images and these truth in their hearts and minds and lead them for their lives to come. We realize, Lord, that there is no drop of water wasted in this great work you're doing to transform us. And so be with this one little drop of a sermon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How's your prayer life? Are you like me? You pray in your mind and find yourself many times having to capture your runaway thoughts and bring them back to the throne of grace? Or maybe you pray out loud and sometimes you stumble over your words. You know what you want to say, but you just don't have the right words to express them. Or maybe you repeat yourself sometimes. Lord, bless them. Lord, heal them. Lord, help them. Or maybe your prayers are eloquent, biblically saturated. Now, either way, whatever your prayer life, the fact is when we come to John 17, we see how much they pale in comparison to God's amazing prayer. And I would therefore invite you to turn, please, into John 17 to follow along. Because the last time we were together, we dared to enter the Holy of Holies. The eavesdrop as the Son of God speaks to the Father. As I tried to argue right from the first couple of words, we realized it is Jesus praying as the Son, as the eternal, transcendent Son of God to his Father. So there's even more of this incredible eternal intimacy being brought before us right here. It's enfleshed so we can learn from it. And more I was really drawing myself in these words to prepare this sermon, and more I realized how incredible is this prayer. I mean, first of all, as I've probably mentioned before, and it's, it's worth repeating, the request Jesus makes is very simple. Build my church. He basically says, set them apart and make them one over and over again. But you see in the text, it's more than just one phrase. There's so much more going on here in this intimacy between the Son and the Father than just build my church. And we want to delve into it. But we also remind ourselves of the context. Therefore, I think it would be good for us to read from verse 1 to verse 15, even though our text is verse 11 to 15. But first, a little water. So, follow along. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all who have, you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. In Jesus, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you've gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them. And I've come to know in truth that I came from you. And that, oops. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and, all, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and are a text. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I wish, well, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Did you see some of the repetition going on as he's praying, some of the things he keeps repeating, certain words or phrases or ideas? Of course, it's not vain repetition. This is the word made flesh. This is wisdom incarnate. There's a reason and purpose for this repetition that we want to discover together. And we see that Jesus is really playing these notes over and over again for a reason, and he actually starts with kind of a false note. Here's what I mean. He starts by saying, I am no longer in the world. Well, how can he say that if he still has 45 days still on earth? I am no longer? Yes, you are, Jesus. There's something about that note that's kind of off. Because at the same time, he's, he's praying in the divine sense. He's seen the reality that everything is accomplished. There's a sense where this prayer seems to be the nexus, that point where God has said, from this point on, everything else is okay. We know that after he did his other prayer, in his humanity, where he says, may this cup pass from me. He then gets up, and the face like flint goes to it. It's done. It's accomplished. Even though things to happen, they will happen. And so in his very divine sense, he can say, I am no longer in the world. And of course, you're hearing with that, one of those repeated notes, the world. We're going to see it over and over again. Either the word itself or the idea of in the world. But before he hits that, he reminds that the disciples are still in this world. They're still in this present reality. They're still living here and now in this culture, in this society. I'm not, but they are, and that's going to be important later on. So we need to take note of that. We need to put it in our pockets for later. But not before he just hits another false note. And he says, and I'm coming to you. He just said, I'm no longer in the world. And then he says that he's coming future tense to you. Well, I'm not a grammar expert, and you will probably correct me later, but isn't there a sense where he says, I'm no longer in the world, it's because I am with you. But yet he says, I'm coming. In his humanity, he's saying there's still something to do. In his divinity, he's saying, sorry, it's settled. But in his human sense, he's saying, I'm still coming to you. 
There's still things to be done. We're going to see that he's going to keep playing on the piano from all sides of the piano keys. He's going to keep going from the present to the future to the present over and over again. And it's at this point that he's starting to actually ask something. At this point, he's only talking, right? You've recognized he's really interacting with his father. He hasn't actually asked anything. Now, the request begins, and take note who he's asking. He's asking the Holy Father. When he starts his prayer, and you can see in verse 1, he asks, my father. It's intimate. It's personal. But now he's asking the holy, transcendent, thrice holy God for something. That's not for nothing. Again, the disciples are definitely listening on this. They're hearing what he has to say in his prayer. They're reminded that the person that he's going to is this God who is separate from this entirety of creation that's infected by sin, right? This swell, this under the rule of Satan. He's holy from, separate from. That's the God I'm talking to. That's the God I'm turning to. That's the God I'm going to leave you to, to care for you. This God who is separate from this present reality. Again, these notes are not for nothing. And this is what he asks of the Father. Keep them in your name. What does he mean by that? Is it maybe connected back to the Psalms where many times the name of God is connected to his power? Trust in his name is in trust in his power. Well, yes, but I think much more. If you look back to verse 6, you will see that Jesus said part of his mission was to manifest, to reveal the name of God, right? his person, his essence, his attributes. The way he lived and everything he thought was Jesus presenting the Father to the disciples. I believe that's what he's getting at here, to keep, to protect, to Keep them in this revelation of who is God. Keep them focused on this holy, mag- magnificent, perfect, good, loving God that you are. When you understand that the word of God, the Bible, is not a book of rules. It is the revelation of who is this God and who we are. It's the revelation of what light looks like, commandments, and what darkness, which is against God, looks like, sins then you realize that when he says, keep them in your name, he's saying keep them in this revelation of who you are. This is light, this is darkness, keep that out of them. And we we come to understand that when we come to the world, when we come to understanding what God is asking, it's not just about getting the rules right, it's about understanding who God is and living according to that. And this is when he's going to hit that note that he's already hit in the past and he needs to hit it again which you have given me. The election note. That note that some people don't like and others don't want to talk about, and yet Jesus says, I have to say it again. You have given it to me. I love that. I love it because it's important. He's not a theologian trying to argue for his own point. This is the Son of God speaking to his Father in all divinity saying, they were yours. You chose them. You loved them. You took some, not all, You took some from a world that wants nothing to do with you, hates you, even when you show grace. You took some and you gave them to me. That's who I'm praying for. That's Jesus saying that. But all this has a goal and a purpose, and that's important. The goal is that they may be one, even as we are one. That means... This work of sanctification, he's asking of the Father, right? Keep them in your name. 
keep them growing and knowing who you are and living accordingly. That reality is not an end in of itself. It's not just about me being spiritual, being, being mature and better than everybody else. It said that they may be one even as we are one. It's about a unity of community that's like the Trinity. And yes, I did it on purpose to rhyme. Could you imagine Jesus turning to the Father and saying, I know somebody has to die for the sins of the world, but could we send somebody else like Daniel? I mean, he's pretty cool. How about Enoch? You took him, he took him up, so he's pretty amazing, right? Send him instead. How about the Spirit? Spirit turning to Jesus saying, I know that my mission is to talk about you, but can I talk about me a little bit? You know how incredible I am a bit? How about the Father turning to both of them and saying, I'm older, I'm more mature, you do it my way. Yet, don't we kind of act like that? Paul dealt with this kind of problem in the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians. And the way he did it was with this image of a body, saying, yeah, there's all these differences and all these gifts, but it's about the unity of the body functioning as one. That's what you guys need to aim at. And then he strikes right at the heart of their division with the love chapter. And God does the same thing with the rest of his word, right? All the New Testaments, so much commandments about what love's supposed to look like. This love is sacrificial, dying to oneself. It's not about what you want and what you think. It's about the others and what they need. It's about the humility that says, even though I might have a better idea, let's do it your way instead. Wow. But yet, that's what Jesus is asking for here. This kind of unity that is similar to the Trinity. That should weigh heavy on our hearts for a little bit. That should make us consider, is that truly what we're aiming at? Or we're just focusing on, I want to be spiritual, I want to be mature. Well, true maturity will be focused on aiming towards that kind of unity that's similar to the Trinity. Wow. As this weighs upon our hearts, we're going to see now Jesus hit yet another note in the false category, where he first started with the present note, right? I'm no longer here. And then the future note, I'm coming to you. And now a completely left side is going to go with the past note. While I was with them. Understand that with them part is the world part. This is another way of playing that same note in the world. But now he's going back in the past. He's going back to his earthly ministry. He just spoke about the fact that he is no longer here. And he's, even, he's aiming at, I'm going to the Father. But wait a second, I want to talk about something that happened before. And he's going to explain why, though. Because of that mission, I kept them in your name. I hope you're seeing the beautiful hand movements that Jesus is doing right now. Because he's going from the Father who took some, gave them to the Son. And the Son's saying, okay, I kept them when you gave them to me. I showed them who you are. Now I'm giving them back to you so you could do that until I come back and get them for good. Beautiful hand movements from Jesus between him and the Father over and over again. This is the mission he came to accomplish, to keep them in the revelation of who God is, just like he's asking the Father to keep on doing right now, as we're doing here this morning. And of course, Jesus, he just loves that same kind of music. He loves those notes, yeah, which you have given me. He just had to say it again. He just had to mention it one more time. They were yours, but you gave them to me. That's what's important about them. They're that gift of the Father to me. And he's going to again repeat this fact that his mission was successful. I have guarded them. 
and not one of them has been lost. Realize he's saying this, just a few hours later, they're all going to split and run away. Right? Peter denies him. The only one at the cross is actually John. And yet he says, not one of them has been lost. Because of course he's not talking about moments when we fall away, moments when we discourage, moments where sin gets the best of us, but that ultimate falling away, that apostasy, right? Falling from the faith, abandoning it all. When Jew gets to sit on the piano himself, he's going to play some of the same notes. He's going to say, now, to him, God, who is able to keep you from stumbling, that word there speaks of that ultimate falling away. He's going to keep you from that. But not just that. It's not just you make it into heaven, you're kind of not okay. No, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy. See, God doesn't just do a halfway job. It's not just like he's dragging us and I got you to heaven. Phew! No, no, we're going to look like Christ when we get there. And he's going to work us in so we start looking like him more and more. There's an assurance to it, just like when Christ says it. But wait a second, there's that little false note going on again. Except the son of destruction? Doesn't that sound weird? He said categorically three times, I kept them in your name. I guarded them. Not one of them was lost, except the son of perdition. Oh, wait. That sounds kind of weird, right? It's kind of out of the blue. You're speaking of assurance, the certainty, not one, not one. Shouldn't he have said almost not one? Almost everybody. No, he said not one, except that son of destruction. There's a reason he's mentioning this son right now, this Judas. Do you know that expression, son of destruction, comes back one more time in the New Testament? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, speaking of the Antichrist. Does that mean Judas is the Antichrist? Yes and no. No, not the ultimate revelation of evil, the Antichrist. But yes, but because he points to him. By his behavior of betraying God and being against everything that God is for, he is pointing towards this ultimate Antichrist. Like many others through history, right? We start with Daniel, Antiochus Epiphanes. Hey, I got it. Good. Antiochus Epiphanes. No, no, I didn't. But Judas is different because he was part of the family of faith. He was in there with them. He didn't look any different for those three years. But he still ended up being a son of destruction. One who points to the ultimate rebellion. That's not for nothing. It's just like when we see in, in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews... The, the believers are challenged to persevere towards persecution. No matter what's going on, keep going, guys. But some are falling away. Some are going back to Judaism, not just changing churches, literally going back to another system to please God. That's why when they, the fact that they're going back to animal sacrifices, the author says, by doing that, you are rejecting the blood of Christ as the only way. So we're talking about the ultimate falling away. Yet in that passage... The author says something weird like this. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. 
That kind of sounds like some kind of conversion, right? Also sounds like Judas, doesn't it? Didn't he also kind of taste the heavenly gifts and share the Holy Spirit? He, he was able to heal like the other 12, uh, 11, 11 were able to do. He tasted the goodness of the word of God. He wasn't defeated, Jesus, hearing that message, and yet he fell away. He literally was the reason why he was crucified on the cross by betraying him. There is a sense where that reality will not just exist with Judas, but so forth and so on. I believe that's why Jesus is mentioning this son of destruction in his prayer as the disciples are listening in so they'll know this is going to happen again and again and again. There will be those who seem to taste something, but are not part of those who are assured. See, there are some that the Father literally reaches out and grabs. They're assured. They're in his hands. And there's some to try kind of crawl in there, but then they fall out. But they're not those who are grabbed by the Father. So that's why he continues, the author, and says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The rain is, of course, the water of the word of God. When God is the one bringing it into hearts of somebody, it will bear fruit. There's no ifs, ands, about, buts about it. But somebody trying to drink that rain by themselves will do nothing because their hearts are not regenerated. So there's something important in what Jesus is saying. And all of that, by the way, has a purpose. There's a goal to it, once again. He explains, it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. There was a reason for this betrayal. I believe that Jesus is mentioning this reality of Scripture being fulfilled to encourage these believers right now listening in who will see the betraying and will understand it later on and to know that was part of God's plan. Right? David said it, the one who eats bread with me will turn his foot against me, speaking of his own Judas, but also speaking about his later son Jesus and his Judas. What God had said in the Old Testament has come to pass in the New but what God is saying in the new will also come to pass. So there's something of assurance for those listening in right now like us. Scripture will be fulfilled. What God has promised about him coming back to get us, to be with him forever, will be fulfilled. The promises that he gave us the gift not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That, that's also the promises that God keeps, by the way. So these things will be, and this note of Scripture will come back as he keeps playing his song. But first, another little off note. But now, I'm coming to you. Wait, how is that possible? How can he say now, at this very moment, I'm coming to the Father if there's still 45 days to go? I mean, he, he still has to go to trial, to be crucified, spend 40 days with the disciples, Yet he's saying, but now, this very moment, I'm coming to you. Because again, he's seen all of it as accomplished in his divine way of seeing things. He's speaking with that kind of assurance because the disciples need to know that what God says comes to pass. I also believe there's another reason is because those 40 days with Jesus, where he's going to teach them, none of it has been written down. But oh, how many people have tried to figure it out. I got revelation from God. I know what he taught the disciples during those 40 days. 
No, because at this moment, Jesus says, it's, it's accomplished. It's done. There's nothing new to be given. Nothing new for you guys to have. But he adds this, though. And these things I speak in the world. That's a weird phrase. That's redundancy. If I say at this very moment, I am preaching from the pulpit, you would say, yes, Martin, we can all see you. So why is Jesus saying, and these things I speak in the world? We know you're speaking in the world, Jesus, but there's a reason for it, though. See, these truths are meant to stay in the world, as in they're meant to be written down. Just like this prayer right now was written down. Peter does the same kind of thing, actually. In 2 Peter, he tells his audience, I'm going to make sure my teachings stay with you. He's hinting at the fact that he had to write them down, first and second Peter. That way, his teachings stayed with them. I believe what Jesus is saying here. By in these things I speak in the world, he means what is important, what is good for you, what is necessary, what is scripture will be left in the world for you guys. He spoke of that in the upper room discourse. When he told the apostles, not us, the apostles, when my spirit comes, he will remind you of everything I taught and teach you everything else. That's not just for them. It was so they could write down for us the four gospels, the epistles. The spirit came with these men, and so we have what was meant for us throughout history to know what is important about God. This revelation of who he is, right, kept in his name. So that these things that he's speaking in the world would stay in the world for our own good. And we know that because he then explains what these words are so important. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. You want to find that joy fulfilled in Christ? It, it's found in the word. Oh, yeah, there's still a sense where the Spirit will give us this joy moments, in certain moments where you, it just comes out of nowhere, right? You feel that joy of the Lord. Amazing. And moments where God answers our prayers and we feel joy for what He did. Amazing. But a joy fulfilled? That's found here. See, He hinted at it too in His upper room discourse. Once again, it's all, this prayer is all built on that. And He said, These things I've spoken to you. Please understand. What he's speaking of this upper room discourse for these 11 men was not meant to stay for these 11 men. Even though it's orders and commands for them and the missions they would have, it was still written down for us today. So there's something about these things I've spoken that was also meant to be written for us. And there's a purpose, again, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Again, where is that joy found? In the spoken words, in the written words. We, we say that, we recognize it, but do we apply it? Do we seek for it here? The spoken words. Lord, give me a word. I did. It's right here. Go, go read it. And it's in that very word also that we see more of this joy being fulfilled, actually. In the very next chapter of the same uh, upper room discourse, he's going to say, until now, you've asked nothing in my name. And please understand, asking in his name is not just the name you put at the end of your prayer. It means you're hiding in his very person, his work on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection. You're hiding in his sonship, 
as you come to, to the Father, saying, I'm hiding in Jesus, please answer me. That's what he means by asking in his name. And what do you ask? You ask and you will receive that your joy may be what? Full. Once again, prayer is part of it. See, God tells us, cast your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. He tells you to come to the throne of grace because the mediator is there praying for you. He said that when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit helps you with groans too deep for words. That's all from the Word, by the way. I didn't make that up. So again, the Word of God is important to Jesus. And that's what he's getting at when he talks about this joy being fulfilled in them through this spoken word, spoken word in the world. And we know it's all about the Word because he then hits again that same note. I have given them your word. Now, of course, at this point, the word of God is what he taught them during his earthly ministry. At this point, there's no epistles of Paul. They will come, but at this point, the word that he's given them is what we have so far. This revelation of who God is through Jesus. He gave that to them. But now it's going to get kind of disturbing, right? Dun, dun, dun. And the world has hated them. Oh. The world is there again, right? The culture, the society, reality all around us has hated them. That's weird. He's using the past tense. It's weird because in the Upper Room Discourse, he's going to say, the world will, future tense, hate you. How can he say the world will, and then just a few minutes later say the world has how can the future and the past coexist like this? Can you figure it out? As you do, I'm going to take a sip of water. Have you figured it out? Okay, I'm going to try to help you guys. Jesus, right now, I believe he's speaking about the hearts of these unregenerated, devil-led, worldly people. That hate is there. It is there, and when Jesus is removed from the equation, when he goes back to the Father, that hate will explode in their face. It will hate them. But the fact is, it's already there, has hated them. It's already a reality. This world hates God. There's no other way to say it. This world, without the regenerating work of the Spirit, hates God and what he represents. He is a holy and perfect God. They do not love that God. And everybody who represents this God is hated in return. To give you an example of for what a modern-day reality, this world hates our God. But we don't, we're not seeing this hate here in the West. I mean, there's some frustration and irritation against us, but they say hate to the point of violence, like maybe we see in Nigeria, where armed men are going around from church to church, from village to village, killing Christians, saying their mandate is to kill all Christians in Nigeria. Or in Afghanistan, still ruled by the Taliban, well, there's still Christians there, actually. And when they discovered, they're instantly killed. That's hate. That's that kind of hate that Jesus is talking about. It's there. But for us here, not yet. I don't want to be a prophet of doom and gloom, but I will dare say, not yet. But it's there. I believe that's what Jesus is saying here. The world, it has that hate. And it will be seen when I am removed from this. But he's going to explain even more why that hate is there. Because they're not of the world. 
please take note. He's not giving a statement of uh, should be, right? They should not be of the world. They shouldn't be worldly, these guys. No, he's giving a statement of fact. Speaking of their identity, they are not of the world. There's a certainty behind it. Can't make a sermon out of this that's supposed to like uh, convict us that we should be less worldly. No, this is the reality that this is our identity. And we are to live it out, of course. Now, we, we know this is not just about what you watch on TV or where you go at night. This is about a mindset and ideologies and desires and ways of life that is not like the world. I don't want to give any example here. I don't want the spirit convict at all about what is worldly. But again, when you come to this revelation of who God is, right, all these commandments that we speak of God in his light and his perfection, and all these sins that speak against him and say, that must be me, this must not be me. Because we are not of the world. But this is when it gets even harder. Just as I am not of the world. Oh, like Jesus is not of the world. We just saw that he's leaving the world, right? He's no longer in the world. He's going to the Father. But of course, it's more than just that. Speaking of the fact that even during his earthly ministry, he was not of the world. He lived out his divinity in his humanity while he was in the world. The citizenship of heaven was being seen by the way he acted and reacted and spoke and desired and lived for. His very life and, and food was to do the will of the Father. Again, this should, should really weigh heavy on our hearts. It's not just saying, okay, I, I'm not that bad when I compare myself to my neighbor or the other believers. No, it's when I look to Jesus, oh, yeah. Yeah, I got a lot of work to do. Again, it's not about trying to find the right rules, but to realize this is moment by moment, decision by decision, day by day reality where we question ourselves, am I living this identity of not being in the world like Jesus is not of the world? But we can be a bit extreme in that. And that's why Jesus adds this little part. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. How many throughout Christian history have not understood that? The monastic movements, the nuns. Even nowadays, we have Christian communes and other efforts to just keep ourselves together. And there's something beautiful about fellowship, but he asked the Father not to take them out of the world. It's easy to be a light with other lights around us. It's being that light in those deep, dark darkness all around us. That's more challenging. That's also why you want to be careful not to put some soot on that light. And that's why Jesus adds this, but that you keep them from the evil one, from Satan, from the world, from the flesh, like Ephesians tells us, that triple enemy. I hope you're seeing the little play on words, a little uh, um, change of musical tone that he's doing with the word keep. He started by asking the Father, keep them in your name, your revelation. But now he's asking, keep them from the evil one. Right? In this revelation of who God is, but away from what is not of God. That's the simple discussion, this description of what it means to be not of the world while still being in the world. It's to live as if we are God's emissaries on earth according to his word, keeping out what is not of God but of the enemy. 
But of course, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus is not playing a song to the disciples, but to the Father. Here's what I mean. He did not start by saying, you guys, keep yourself in the, the name of the Father, and you keep yourself from the evil one. No, we read it. It's a prayer. He said, Holy Father, keep them in your name and keep them from the evil one. This is the work of God in our lives. Isn't that reassuring, though? To know this is the work of God and not of us? That in every effort of, of growing and maturing is assured because God is going to make sure that. He started this good work. He will finish it. As we work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling, he gives us the willing and the doing according to his good pleasure. See, the same thing is happening in the book of Hebrews, where, again, he's, these guys are being challenged to persevere no matter what. Chapter 12 is, is harsh and challenging because he says, you look up to Jesus, and you take the chastisement of the Lord, and you resist until blood, and you lift up your arms, and you keep running. Ouch. But that's not where he ends, though. It actually ends in chapter 13 with these few words. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Doing his will, that's our part. But working it in us, equipping us for it, that's his part. That's encouraging. Same thing is going on in Thessalonians, where again, he's encouraging this church under persecution to keep going, keep loving, keep serving, being of the light, chapter 5, praying without ceasing. That's demanding. But it doesn't end on that. He actually ends again with these notes. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And that is encouraging words to finish on. May the Lord continue to work in our lives as Christ has asked. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you because it is a difficult life in this broken world. And, and sin and the enemy is, is more subtle than ever. And we're grateful for your word that renews our minds and your spirit that illuminates us so we can see and understand it and sanctifies us to know, Lord, that you are the one at work to do this. Thank you for that. I pray that on this week that we would be alert when we are not like you, not like Jesus, not according to your word. And we're, we're slowly slipping more and more into being of the world. Help us be alert to these things, Lord. It's subtle. Help us to see in our thoughts and in the desires, our reactions, what it is being of the world, of the flesh, of who we used to be, but we are not anymore. And to live out this identity in Christ, this newness of life by your Spirit. Help us to do that as Christ prayed for it. We are here saying, please do it. Oh, Heavenly Father, and we ask in his name, amen. Thank you.